Well, good morning. I uh, hope you're doing well. We're glad you're here today. If you're visiting with us, my name is Kirkwood. I'm one of the pastors here. And so a special welcome to you. Thanks for visiting with us today, for worshiping God with us today. Uh, I want to tell you where we're going in, in Scripture today. Um, we're taking a departure from Ephesians chapter 5, which is what we've been looking at the past few weeks. We're actually going to be in Deuteronomy chapter 6 today. So if you would prefer to follow along in your Bible or on your device, go ahead and mark uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Otherwise, it will be on the screen for you when we get there. I want to talk to you about transition and about firsts in life. Uh, There's lots of firsts in life. There's lots of first-time experiences we have. Early in life, a lot of our firsts, they're not really programmed. They're not things that we necessarily intentionally move towards. There are uh, things like the first smile. I remember the first time my sons smiled at me. There's the first words, the first words that come out of our mouths as we're learning our language. There's first steps. We celebrate those. There's first loose tooth or first lost tooth, right? Uh, those things happen and we don't really have to plan for them. Parents, we, we get to see those things happen. Then there's other things that happen with a little more intentionality and programming in life, with a little more uh, training. Things like the first day of school, you know, it's a build up to the first day of school. There's the first dance recital, if that's what your kids are into, or the first goal or touchdown, uh, if they're into sports. There's the first time they ride their bike without training wheels. And whoever the parent is that's teaching that skill, kind of like, uh, with a little bit of angst, right? Because you don't want them to bust their face. There's another significant first in life. Happens a lot later. It's graduating high school. It's a milestone. Uh, for some, graduation represents uh, the end of being in a classroom on a perennial basis for 10 months of the year. If they're headed off to the workforce or to some other adventure in life, maybe working for, uh, uh, I don't know, a, a missions organization or uh, jumping right into the workforce or you know, maybe even serving in the military, who knows? There's all, uh, pursuing a trade would be another one. Uh, for students who are going on to uh, post-secondary education, the, it's a transition because the academics are different now. What they're going to pursue in college or university is different. And what's interesting is that around that same time, as if that's not enough change to navigate at once, they also hit adulthood around that same time, legal adulthood. And that represents a new level of privilege and of responsibility as adults. And so whatever the future holds for a high school graduate, um, one thing is certain, and I think we would all agree, that it's a time of transition. It's a time of change for them, obviously, and also for their families, because things are going to look different in the future. The Oxford Dictionary defines transition this way. It says, it is the movement or passage from one state to another, as in from adolescence into adulthood. And the transition, this looks different in every family, a little bit different. But the basic premise is the same, that with age and responsibility comes more authority and independence. Heavy emphasis on and Maturity, right? Independence comes with responsibility um, and age. Uh, So if there's a land in between those two, it's got to be adolescence. There has, it's it's between the the, sort of the preteen and the adolescent years, that has to be uh, the land in between and and one of the most significant times of transition. If you think about just the teen years alone, 13 to 19, in those few years, uh, there are more changes that take place physiologically, mentally, than at any other time in life. Adolescence itself isn't limited to 13 to 19. It's a 10-ish, 10 to 12-year uh, period of transition, and all kinds of things are changing in this decade or thereabouts. Um, 
It is the longest season of change or period of change so far experienced in life. For us, for Kim and I, when our boys were little, uh, it seemed like infancy flew by, like it was gone, like that. We did it twice in a row. We had Brett, and then 13 months later, Nate came into our lives. And so infancy flew by for both of them. Toddlerhood didn't last much longer. It was you know, three years maybe, depending on how you define toddler, but it was over in a flash. And then it was sort of the preschool years of new experiences and new learning opportunities. And before we knew it, both of our guys, both of our little fellows were school-aged. And that brought with it a whole other set of experiences and challenges. The teen years for us have taken a while to arrive. Brett will be 12 this summer. Nate will be 11. We're not quite there, but we're kind of on the doorstep. We're on the threshold of crossing into that path. And, uh, I would say that having watched friends go through this, most of our friends, their kids are, are older than ours. Um, I would say that, that that time represents a period of challenge for every family. And, and sometimes those challenges are really, really positive things. It's not always negative. Adolescence is not always negative. I think sometimes teenagers get a bad rap from adults, but a lot of the changes that are taking place are awesome. They're positive. They're things that we celebrate, but it's not without periods of difficulty. For any family, likely. Uh, the Bible, what does it say about, about transition? What does it say about raising children? It has a lot to say. One of the verses that comes to mind for me when I think about raising children is, and we're going to tackle that in a second because I think that's actually a misnomer. I don't think we're raising children. But anyway, um, Proverbs 22 verse 6 says this, depending on your translation, mine reads, start children off on the way they should go. And even when they are old, they will not turn from it. In other words, what we do now as parents, teaching them about God, if we set them on the right path, when they're older, they won't turn from it. That's good parenting advice, encapsulated in those few words right there. And it's intended, I believe, I believe God intended to use those words to inspire us, to encourage us, because he knew that we would hit periods of transition when things would be difficult. And he said, hey, start them off in the way they should go. And when they're older, they won't turn from it. I think what you need to know, what we need to know, is that parents have more influence in terms of influencing their kids' faith development than anybody. You need to know that. Parents are number one and number two, mom and dad, top influencers in nurturing their kids' developing spirituality. So if you're parenting through transition now, whether it's from infancy into uh, toddlerhood or, or childhood into adolescence or adolescence into adulthood, if you're navigating transition now, be encouraged. You will get there, but... Keep seeking God for wisdom and, uh, yeah, guidance. Now, what about the church? If I just told you that mom and dad are the top influencers. So, so what about the church? What's the church's role? Where does the church come in in the influency hierarchy, if you will? We believe that the church is a spiritual family, that it's made up of people who love Jesus, and therefore it's a conglomerate of families. The church is. Uh, we believe our role as a church, firmly believe this, that our role is not to become surrogate parents, surrogate spiritual parents, not to become replacement parents. Our role is to support and train when necessary and equip parents, but heavy emphasis on support, to support parents as they raise their children. And I would say this, speaking for the ministry staff here, um, we have no problem telling you that we feel the weight of that responsibility, that it weighs heavily on us. And for all of us, everyone here, not just the ministry staff, but for all of you, for all of us today, whether we now have or hope to in the future have influence with young people and to help them uh, in their relationship with God and their maturity into adults, healthy adults, 
whether we have it or we want it someday, I would suggest that as a precondition for us to have such a role is the pursuit, our own pursuit of Jesus, that we need to be nurturing our own faith and our own healthy walk with the Lord. Because here's the thing, you guys, kids are very good at fake faith detecting. They can tell when it's not real. They can tell when a person is faking it and they won't press into somebody who, who says all the right things but doesn't live them out. So we have to seek more Jesus in our lives, be transformed by Jesus and live in such a way that when they look at us, they see someone who actually loves and walks with the Lord. And so public service announcement, if you will, as we talk about transition today, consider how nurturing the development, the faith development of future generations means you and I pursuing Jesus and a growing relationship with him first. Now, from time to time, we hear from families around here, different experiences. We hear from uh, SR kids, we hear from youth, we even hear from young adults, uh, how they're navigating this transitional period uh, uh, and experience. Maybe you know a teenager, maybe you know them very well. Maybe they share the same roof with you. Um, maybe you know a teenager who feels like or has said, hey, I don't feel like you guys take me seriously. I don't feel like I'm taken seriously by my parents or by other authority figures in my life when it comes to making, quote, my own decisions. Maybe they've said that to you. Uh, as a parent, maybe you feel tension um, with your, your teen or your child or your young adult, maybe you feel tension around some of the things that you know they're navigating right now. Uh, maybe it's, it's who, you know, their first love. Maybe it's the boyfriend-girlfriend thing. Maybe it's that dynamic where you feel tension. Maybe it's uh, what they say they want to do when they grow up. Maybe you think they should pursue a particular thing because you see gifting and experience and passion and all that, but they're interested in it. And maybe you feel tension there. Maybe you're trying to, influence, to go this, influence them to go this way. They want to go that way. Maybe the tension is around spiritual things. Maybe you're looking at their life, their walk with the Lord, and you're like, I'm just not sure that they're really seeking God. Um, I, know, uh, I know older teens who feel like in these conversations, as these things unfold in life, I know older teenagers who say, uh, you know what? I don't think they take me seriously. I think we are, I'm too old to be just a kid anymore. They tell me that all the time. Grow up, you're not just a kid anymore. But at the same time, I feel like they're holding me back on the other end of that. And they're, and they're, say, and they're, they're saying I'm not responsible enough or I'm too indecisive for them to really give me sort of more authority, more say, more control in my life. And so they're caught in this period of transition, in this space in between. Consider grandparents. Grandparents have probably... I'm going to say the most difficult uh, place in this conversation here, because here's the thing. You, you have, as grandparents, uh, you have the benefit and the blessing, or depending on how you look at it, the curse of knowing how this is going to play out. Kind of like Monday morning quarterbacking a football game. Like you've seen the highlight reel. It's just got different faces and names on it now. But you remember navigating this when your kids who are now parents were kids. You remember some of these challenges. And I know we all say the next, the next generation always says this generation has it, or excuse me, the, the older generations always say this generation has it harder than we had it. We didn't deal with the things they do. We didn't have social media. We didn't have, pornography wasn't the issue it is now. We, I'd hate to be a kid now. I, I know we say that. My grandparents said that. My parents said that. I now say that. Um, but here's the thing. I think grandparents, you have the experience of wisdom because you've worked through some of these things when your kids were kids. And so now you're watching your children and your grandchildren navigate this. And uh, sometimes it's complicated because sometimes you have something to offer. Sometimes you have something to say. And, and that creates tension as well. 
Now, I know that not all families necessarily fall into what I've described. I don't think I could hit every nail, bang on the head. But I do think whatever your particular experience is in transition in adolescence to adulthood, uh, whatever your role is, your title, mom, dad, uncle, cousin, grandparent, I think we can all agree that transition and tension are two things that are in the mix, two things taking place. You've, you've probably heard the adage uh, that it takes a village to raise a child. Uh, You've heard, has anybody not heard that? Uh, it's pretty common, right? Anthropologists actually believe that it originated with a group of people in uh, eastern Nigeria called the Igbo and the Yoruba people. And they would say this. They would say, Ora na azu nawa. And I read that and I was like, I have no clue what that means. So I called a Nigerian friend and I said, hey, like I know what it's translated to in English, but you know how language is, right? There's idiom and there's, there's like little subtleties in, in language. What does it actually mean? Like, does it literally mean uh, it takes a village to raise a child? And, and my Nigerian friend told me that the, the originators believed that this little proverb, that the idea of it was that the whole community should be caring and responsible adults, not just role models for their own children, but for the generations of children around them through their communities. It's a little broader than it takes a village to raise a child. And so for us as followers of Jesus, uh, we want to be good role models, but our desire is, is to help the next generation grow into godly and mature adults. That should be uh, among our top goals. And we want them to be, here's the thing, we want them to be confident and secure in their faith, right? We want them to be able to stand on what they say they believe. And so what I think that suggests to us now is that we have a responsibility to program what we're doing today with that in mind as the end goal. If I want a mature, godly young man, young men as sons in adulthood, then I need to be thinking about shaping and doing and planning with my wife and other influences in their lives now for what I want that result to be like. I don't wait until they're 26 out of the house and then start having that conversation. So what I would say is what we do now, wherever you are in the stage, whether you're holding them today or they're sitting beside you today or they're fighting you and they're not even here today, what we do now matters. And, and I would say this too, to the whole church, regardless of age, there are no excuses here. There's no hall passes, no permission slips to not participate. There's no non-participation here because the, the faith community is who God has given this responsibility to. And I know they look scary. I know they do. I know they look scary sometimes. I know that their music preference is sometimes a little less than desirable. I know their clothing choices kind of make people scratch their heads. I know their fashion options and their social behaviors can feel intimidating. I know that. But kids, your parents still have something to offer you in terms of faith development. See, the adults, you thought I was talking about the kids. I'm, I'm not. I'm talking about us talking about you. We're intimidating. We look scary to them. The idea of pressing into us when we are as different as we are, and as my son would remind me, sons would remind me, as uncool as I am, the idea that we can't press into them because we're different is just not true, right? Uh, I, I, I've seen shoes lately. I saw a friend wearing a pair of shoes the other day that I told him. I had no problem telling him this. In 1983, when I was in sixth or seventh grade, I had those same shoes, yeah, and, and, and I'm sure he looked at me and was like, well, they were never this cool when you wore them, whatever. But the idea is that, that adults have something to offer young people in terms of their faith development. So don't be discouraged. Uh, my point is that multiple generations have to collaborate on faith. So grandparents, aunts, uncles, coaches, teachers, neighbors, friends, what we're covering today applies to everybody. You just own slightly larger or smaller pieces of it depending on your role. 
Now, to do this well, we have to think about, to do this, this faith, uh, faith uh, what's, a, what's a way to say it? To, to make sure that we are passing on a legacy of faith to them, we have to consider how authority and responsibility are shifting. They are not static. They are changing whether you like it or not. And like most areas in life, our willingness as parents, grandparents, foster parents, whatever the situation, adult authorities, our willingness to trust them with more say-so, more autonomy uh, in their lives comes from their demonstrated wisdom and responsibility in the areas where we've already given them permission to play right? You don't turn over the keys to the car if they haven't figured out how to make their bed. I get that. There's a progression there. There's some logical connections. And so when, we, when they do manage these things well, this set of responsibilities they currently have, and they want more responsibility, we're, we're willing to give it over as they show us how they are maturing. Uh, but I want to address something here. I want you to, I, I realize I've said raising children a couple of times. I want you to understand how I feel about this. We're not actually raising children. We're not. We have children, but we're raising adults, right? And in the context of faith, we're raising godly, Jesus-following, Christ-centered adults. We're not raising children. Uh, We just have children today. So with that in mind, let's pretend this. Let's pretend that God's desire is that every single young person would become three things, practically, relationally, and spiritually independent of mom and dad. Let's just pretend that for a second. Practically independent, relationally independent. I get it. You can't be mother and son without relationship, but relationally independent and spiritually. And I'll break that down for you. I think God's desire is that this occurs over time. I think it's gradual, and I think his plan is that we would, as children growing up, that we would gradually emerge from under the authority structures and uh, the accountability structures of our parents, of childhood. Because if that's not true, what we would have in adulthood is we would have adults who are dependent on mom and dad for the little things. Did you set your alarm? What would you like for breakfast? What time am I taking you to the office today? Uh, hey, don't forget that project your boss assigned you. I think it's due tomorrow, honey, right? That, that wouldn't be practically independent and it wouldn't be healthy. Some of you laugh because that's where you're at. That's okay. Uh, it's a process. Relational health, is, is, it means surrendering control to them to manage their own relationships. And hopefully we've done a good job of teaching them to manage them well because there will be conflicts in life. There will be tensions in relationship. And so I don't think when my sons are adults, I don't think it would be relationally healthy if they were having difficulty with their boss and they needed me to mediate the, the situation. I don't think that would be healthy. Or if I needed to sit down with them and their friend and their friend's dad to help them hammer it out. That wouldn't be relationally healthy. Finally, just like you and I have made, if we're believers all here today, and I don't know that we are, but if you have made a personal decision to follow Jesus, if you have committed your life to Christ, then I would say that spiritual health uh, in, our, in the young people in our lives is similar. They have to ultimately make a personal decision to follow Jesus in order to be spiritually healthy. That means that he becomes more to them than just someone they know some facts about, more to them than someone that they hear some teaching about on Sunday morning. He becomes more than an expression after they sneeze, God bless you. Jesus is more to them than that. And so we have to nurture their faith development so that they're following Jesus independent, hear me, independent of our orchestrating every single encounter with him. That would be spiritually healthy. 
And when I think about spiritually healthy adults, I'm drawn to a passage in the end of 1 Corinthians 13. Some people call it the love chapter where, you know, love is patient, it's kind. And, it, and, and a little bit further on in verse 11, it says this. Paul writes, he says, when I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. In other words, in his mature faith, in his spirituality, he has put childish ways behind him. And so we have this responsibility as parents and church to help the next generation of followers of Jesus in the same way embrace their own uh, mature, healthy, and personal faith. Now, somewhere in the congregation today, a mom or a dad snickered or was tempted to elbow the other in the ribs and say, did you hear that? Spiritual health, practical health, relational health. It's time to get Junior off the couch and out of the basement. I get it. Some of us are navigating that tension. But here's the thing I want you to consider. Somewhere in the auditorium, there's also a kid, like maybe a 12-year-old, who was tempted to nudge mom and dad both and say, I'm ready to go on my own. I'm ready to do it on my own. And then we would look at them and go, really? Do you want to pay your own way and find your own house? And they would go, well, I'm ready to go my own way in decisions, but if you could continue to pay for them, that would be awesome. So there's this tension, right? Yeah, exactly. Money's the last thing to go, I think. Uh, there's this tension, for sure. And the point is that God wants us to help them know and walk with Jesus for a lifetime. So how we do what we do also matters. Not only what we do now, but how we do it now matters. Solomon writes this in Proverbs chapter 20. He says that a child makes themselves known by their acts. What a child does reveals to us who a child is. And then he says this, by whether their conduct is pure and upright. So there's this idea woven into that. What they do shows who their loyalty is to. If, they're loyal, if their conduct is pure and upright, then their loyalty is to God because he's the author of pure and upright. And I would say this, I would say that conduct, if it's pure and upright, it's taught, not caught. They don't accidentally start doing the right thing. So our approaches have to focus on nurturing this practical health, relational health, and spiritual health. Now, what I'm not saying I'm not saying that you are going to hit the point, that we are going to hit the point where uh, we, we, we reach a graduation date or a finish line where all of the influence and the nurture and the mentoring stops. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that there will come a day when they will be relationally healthy and they will no longer need input from you, from us. I'm not saying the day will come when spiritually they won't need encouragement from others in the body of Christ, whether family or friends. I'm not saying that because here's the thing, that goes on for a lifetime, right? God uses the body of Christ, the church, including moms and dads, to continue to provide encouragement to their kids well into adulthood, even senior adulthood. Um, Barna Research Group does a lot of research and work with, with churches on, on, on issues of faith and, and spirituality. Barna tells us that the prime years for godly adults, people following Jesus, to influence the next generation, young people, to pursue Jesus for life happens between the years of 6 and 14, that the prime years of influencing them to make decisions that they will follow Christ for life generally is between the ages of 6 and 14. The influence you have is huge. The window you have in which to exercise it is not so big. It's not massive. And so my question is, how do we make the most out of those years before graduation so that when we hit graduation, the transition to adulthood is a milestone that we look forward to and that we celebrate? 
How do we guide them to become godly adults so that we're not fearful about what might come, that they may leave the path somewhere later down the road? Now, I know what some of you are thinking, I think, uh, my kids are 10 and 11. They're here this morning. My boys are young. I have zero parenting adolescent teenagers experience. None. So you should all leave now. Because what am I going to tell you? Right? I don't know anything. I haven't been there. It's true. I haven't been in your shoes. I haven't navigated that as dad. I haven't walked that with my wife as husband and wife, mom and dad. But here's the thing. Uh, what I do know is I work with a team of adults who have committed themselves to helping parents exercise the influence God has given them in the lives of their adolescents. And the other thing is, because it's based on God's plan, what God's given us, his word, I think it's valid. So the fact that I haven't been there yet, I will concede to you, you have more experience than I do, but I think God has given us all wisdom. And here's what it says, beginning in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 6, verse 1. It says this, These are the commands, the decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land you are crossing the Jordan to possess. This is Moses talking to the Israelites. So that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all of his decrees and commands that I give you, and so that you may enjoy long life. Verse three, he says, Hear Israel and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you and you may increase greatly in the land that you are, uh, excuse me, increase greatly in the land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors promised you. It's a good promise. He says, honor me, instruct them, and it will go well for you. You will live long, you will multiply, you will be blessed. Now listen to this, verse four. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Another translation words that verse this way. It says, the Lord our God is the Lord alone. In other words, the Israelites were committed to God, Yahweh, right? One God. We are a one God people. We believe in God in heaven, not all these other gods that we see uh, the pagan cultures around us embracing. And then he says this, verse five, love the Lord your God with all your heart. This is going to sound familiar to you. With all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Another translation says, teach them diligently to your children. The idea here is intentionality. These aren't things they're going to get by osmosis. We have to live these out. He says, talk about them. This is how you live them out. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you get up and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. This is an interesting thing about Jewish men. They would wear these bands around their heads. They would write scriptures on small pieces of, of scroll, uh, paper, parchment, and they would, uh, they would put it on their head and they would tie a band around their head or they would put it in a small leather box called a phylactery and they would tie the box to their head. And as they made their way to prayer that day, they would have the commands, the instructions of the Lord tied as symbols on their head as if to say, I'm following him. I want to remember this. And I don't know if they were thinking they were getting it by osmosis or if the symbol was important to say, I'm following God. And then he says this in verse nine, write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. God takes this seriously. He tells us to take this seriously. Have these conversations, be intentional, impart these truths. Look at verse six again. These commands I give you are to be on your hearts. What are the commands? Fear the Lord. Keep his statues and his commandments. Teach them to our children. And here's the thing. He says commandments a lot, right? Not just in a do as I say kind of way. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying do as I say only. Because here's the thing, guys. Life teaches life. 
one life instructs another. See, commands alone, they actually don't teach anything. Commands teach nothing. I'm confident saying that. Commands don't teach anything. They instruct everything, but they don't actually teach anything. It is lives, living commands in humble submission and obedience to God that, in, that, that actually turn the, the, the instruction into action that teach. It's why Jesus came. He came to live out obedience on the earth so that we would see his example of submission to God for model, modeling our lives after, and then we would follow after Jesus. And so what we're talking about here, even though we're in an Old Testament passage, we're in Deuteronomy, before Jesus walked the earth as a man, the God-man, what we're talking about here is teaching the character of Christ. And I'm confident saying that because in Mark chapter, 29, or it's 12, chapter 12, Jesus was asked the question, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in all of scripture? And what did he say? He said, you know the commandments and the law you've heard. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. For this is the first and greatest commandment. Jesus actually draws this out and he says, this is the most important thing. And so Jesus living on earth as God's son lives that out. And so that's how I can say we are teaching the character of Christ because Jesus said the most important thing is God. Love God, honor God, obey God, submit to God. And because Jesus loved us and gave of himself, it's what we're supposed to do for the next generation. It's his character that we need in shaping ours so that they will want it shaping theirs. So there are five big things I think that need to happen uh, to help us teach and model this character of Jesus for the next generation so they desire the same. Number one is uh, share life-changing truths. Communicate it effectively and memorably. Now, there are minimum things that we need to believe about Jesus. There are, there are minimum compulsory truths that we want our children to embrace, that he was born of a virgin, that he suffered, that he died, that God raised him from the dead, that he was without sin, right? That he is the propitiation, right? The, the substitutionary atonement for our sin, that his death is sufficient if we will place our faith in him. Those are some of the minimum truths. Andy Stanley was chasing down, hey, his, he's a pastor in Atlanta. He, he's chasing down with his staff. What are the things we need kids, children, youth, young adults to believe? If we had to boil it down, what are the sort of fundamentals that we need them to believe at the end of their ministry experience as they go into adulthood? And he said, uh, here's a few of them. He said, uh, one of them is in his book called The Seven Checkpoints. He said that um, authentic faith in God, that they would have an authentic faith in God, that they would be able to press into and explain and feel and sense and understand their own faith in God. Another one is, uh, is submitting to him as the ultimate authority. If he's God, then I want to submit to him because what he says, how he says I should live is important and I want to submit to, the, to, to him as the ultimate authority in my life. Another one is establishing and keeping moral boundaries because God says it's not healthy, I'm not going to do it. Uh, I want to honor him. And then another one is, would be cultivating healthy friendships. And I alluded to earlier who our, fr who our kids' friends are is important. Uh, help, help them cultivate healthy friendships. Now, I don't expect you to take those home and go, okay, I've got it. I'm just going to implement those this week and we'll be good. Uh, but what I do hope you'll do is that you'll consider those in your approach as you mentor, train, equip, and disciple young people in your life. Maybe moral boundaries is a conversation you haven't had yet. Maybe that's the area of their walk right now where they need a little bit more growth, a little bit more understanding of what God says in his word about how to honor him with moral boundaries and the decisions they make. The point is, if we want them to embrace Jesus, we have to communicate this life-changing truth 
uh, memorably because it's pivotal that they understand it. And when Jesus becomes real to them in their mind and in their heart, when that moment happens, that moment of illumination happens, whether it's in theirs or in ours, for that matter, anyone's, um, we, we need to be teaching and re-repeating the spiritual fundamentals so that they're confident. So PSA, public service announcement, one more time. We need to reinforce spiritual truth in our own lives in order to help uh, stay spiritually rooted so we can, we can help them. Number two is to nurture significant relationships. Help them nurture significant relationships. God didn't intend for us to do faith on our own, right? Uh, we're not monastic people. Um, rather, he put us, he placed us in families and he placed us in community with other Christians. And I would say this to you, generally speaking, Christians who are doing life and faith together with other Christians are more robust in their faith, more firm and more secure and more confident in why they believe what they believe than those who try to go it alone. And because God works in and through relationships and he uses those vehicles for our growth, we have to support healthy connections for them as well. Peer connections, mentoring, relationship connections, and so on. Anybody in the room who's ever been impacted by a godly adult, that name just came to mind when I said that. That person, that man, that woman, that couple impacted me in some way in my life that encouraged me to seek out more faith in Jesus. And for me, that couple is Don and Kathy Curry. They were a couple who worked with me from the time I was a little kid in our church until I was a teenager and I left the church. And they had a massive influence in my life. They didn't see me come to faith until I was in my 20s. Nonetheless, they contributed to the development of my faith in my teen years, even though I walked away from it for a time. But remember what we said earlier on, start them off in the way they should go. And when they're older, they won't depart from it. Not only real people, but scripture, excuse me, real people in our lives, but real people in scripture, uh, there are tons of examples, Paul being one of them, who in his letters to the churches, as he writes to the church at Corinth or the church at Philippi or Ephesus, as he writes to Timothy, we see God using his relationship connection with those people in those churches to encourage and nurture their own spiritual development. Similarly, Jesus obviously, uh, with the 12 disciples and others. He, he exercises relationship with them. He admonishes them. He encourages them. And he, he encourages them to press on and to seek more of God in their life and to obey him in everything. Relationship is crucial in preteens and adolescents. It's important for the rest of us. It is crucial because here's the thing. Churches, and we're no different, churches start losing kids between fifth and sixth grade. It's when we start losing them. See, generally, kids below third grade, they'll trust any friendly big person, generally. But when they hit fourth grade-ish, whenever the hormones kick in and the change starts to occur kind of in their physiological makeup, they, they need to know about fourth grade, they need to know that they can trust us before they're gonna press, allow us to press in, before they're gonna share what they think, what they feel, and what they need. I read a quote recently said, where there are deep roots, freezes don't tend to kill, storms don't blow down, and drought doesn't swallow up. Where there are deep roots. Part of the process of being deeply rooted is having people to be rooted to. And we know that if, if children and youth and young adults have five Christian adults, five Christian influences in their life, they're more likely to stay connected to their faith, they're more likely to continue to grow, and they're more likely to stay in the church well past graduation. So what I would say is if we can take aim at sort of between 12 and 21 years of age, maybe a little younger, 11, uh, if we can take aim at those years, we can positively affect what ministry experts call the slow fade. 
where churches begin to hemorrhage high school students and young adults. When that fifth to sixth grade checkout process continues, they get their driver's license, another dip happens. They hit university, the curve bottoms out. But if we can take aim at 12 to 21, we can stop the hemorrhaging. Around here at Southridge, we do this uh, in a number of ways. Our SR Kids team upstairs, which would include uh, uh, Club 67 and uh, Kids Care and uh, what we traditionally think of with SR Kids, and also our hub, uh, which is our youth ministry leadership. Uh, we, we desire and they try to keep significant leaders in place for a period of years in a child's life and a teenager's life, not just a year. The, the, the desire is that they would stay connected to them over a period of several seasons of ministry. Uh, our hub leaders were recently on a retreat. They were down in, uh, I think they were in Oregon. They were discussing this issue and they were envisioning what it might look, look like to prioritize a relationship-based approach to this so that uh, at the end of student ministry years, our youth don't end up feeling abandoned so that at the end of student ministry, they're still locked in with us. That they don't feel like we've, we've left them, the church has left them because we've stopped ministering to them and we've made them somebody else's issue. Here's what we know. A long-term committed youth leader, their relationship with that student actually becomes significantly more important when that student graduates high school and hits university because in university, everything is new. Permission is new. Authority is new. Accountability is diminished. Opportunity is new. Responsibility is higher. And so, so youth leaders who stay connected to their kids past high school graduation, they do better over the long haul because the church stayed connected to them. It's another milestone graduation is. And if Christian adults will stay through them, stay with them through the transition, it can be huge in terms of their faith. And here's the thing I want you to remember. When we check into somebody's life, we don't check in so that we can then check out, right? When we check in, it's more like a picture of adoption. It's more like we've decided and we've stepped in and now we're linked and we've said, I'm here and I'm going to remain here. And so my question to you is, uh, if that's where you're at, we would love to know that. If you have a desire to influence, to mentor, to equip, to train, to support parents, children, youth, young adults, we would love to know that. If you're doing that well, praise God, help us learn how to do it better. If you just want to be involved in somebody's life to help them grow, we'd love to know that. So please let us know because God has blessed this church with tons of children, youth, and young adults who want to know Jesus more intimately and walk with him and grow in their faith. And we need your help. Number three is about teaching spiritual disciplines. Sorry about the spelling mistake in my outline there. Uh, it's supposed to say, so they learn to live their faith, not life their faith. While we're at it, it's also not 2015 in the top corner there. Somehow I thought we were two years ago. But anyway, uh, spiritual disciplines, how to connect with God and know him better. How do we help them connect with God? Our, our SR Kids team has this four-pronged approach. They take a four-pronged approach to this. Uh, number one is hearing from God. How do we help them hear from God? Number two is praying to nurture their relationship with him, to engage God in conversation so that they grow connected to him meaningfully. Number three is talking with him, or excuse me, talking about him and what he's doing in their life actively. And the last one is living in a way that honors him. Hear, pray, talk, live. And the intention is that this produces, this approach will produce um, self-feeding and spiritually grounded followers of Jesus. Hear, pray, talk, live. Interestingly, some of our, our uh, kids who are in uh, SR Kids small groups that meet on Sunday morning while we're here, some of them have told us, their parents have told us, that they learned to pray aloud outside of the context of their family for the first time there. 
And so they pray on Sunday morning with one another. And some of them have said, hey, this is the first time I've ever done this. Others have told us that they've begun to share in that same context what God's doing in their life. They're given a period, a time to reflect and to share with the group. And some of them say, hey, God's showing me this. God's doing that in my life. I'm, I'm learning this about, about Jesus. And while we're committed, hear, hear this, while we're committed to continue to elevate parents as the top influencers in terms of developing their, their children's spirituality, we're also committed to providing safe spaces here where what parents are doing at home can take root and be lived out in the context of the church community here. And so we're very much for connecting every child, youth, and young adult to uh, godly adult leaders in the context of, of a community group, a support group where that can happen. Number four is supporting their personal ministry. Help support their personal ministry. In 1 Corinthians 12, the Bible tells us, Paul tells us that we all have God-ordained roles to play, that we all represent parts of the body that he intended our gifts to be used to minister to other members of the body. Your kids, our kids, our children, young adults, they have uh, a ministry shape, if you will. God has gifted them. And so our job as a church and a faith community is to foster the opportunities for them to do ministry and for that to increase uh, over time so that the likelihood of their staying connected to the church will continue to grow because when they walk away from church, when they leave, on the way out the door, they don't typically say, you know, they never taught me the gospel. They don't usually say, they never told me who Jesus was. Usually when they leave, it's because they don't understand how who Jesus is and what he did intersects with what they see happening in the world with an unjust and a hurting world. They don't understand that. And so we have to do both. We should absolutely do both. We should absolutely teach them the gospel, who Jesus is, why he came, suffered, died, and what that means for us. And we should help them understand how what he did on the cross is inextricably linked with serving because Jesus came to serve and he's called us to serve. We should teach them the gospel. We should help them serve by offering opportunities and doing ministry with them. A couple weeks ago, our SR kids came downstairs from upstairs and they served us on Sunday morning. They ran production, they ushered, they greeted, they collected the offering. They served in a small way to give them an opportunity to serve alongside the adults who do ministry with them. How can you participate? Maybe, uh, maybe uh, Camp Quanos, they have uh, weekends in the spring where they get the camp ready for, for the summer season when, when 4,000 students are going to come and children are going to come and hear about the Lord. It takes a lot to get the camp ready. Maybe your family could go and serve for a weekend helping get the camp prepared. Maybe like some folks in our church are doing today, you, your family could go on a short-term mission trip to a place like Haiti or Mexico or somewhere else uh, to help them understand the idea of serving um, others so that they can know Jesus. Maybe you uh, and your, your, one of your kids has an interest in, in being a part of what Kids Care does upstairs to support other families that we minister to. There's training that's available for that. Maybe encouraging them to seek that out so that they can do that. Possibly something like soccer camp. Maybe your kids are past soccer camp age and now is an opportunity for them uh, and your family to serve together at soccer camp in that space where we try to create an environment for other children to come to faith in Christ. Serving takes some effort. It takes some initiative, but it'll help connect the dots for them and it'll help them engage in a lifestyle of personal ministry and it will impact their faith just like two years of Club 67 will and just like five years of youth ministry will. Serving is crucial. Lastly, number five is look for pivotal circumstances. Because when they go through things in life like divorce, death, abandonment, and abuse, when they go through those things, they need a safety net and they need an appropriate one. They need one that understands who Jesus is. And, and, and although these are the negative milestones, the things that we don't celebrate in life, and they're not fun, they will happen. 
And they do happen, and they happen here to people in this church, to children and youth and young adults in this church, they happen. When they do, we don't want to divorce ourselves of the relationship with them, and we don't want to abandon them in the time of greatest need. We need to be present. Because when they're in crisis, what should matter most to us is not if they made it to church on Sunday, not if they were at youth on, on, on Wednesday night, or if they were in their community group. What should matter most to us is were we there when they needed us. As parents, family, and church family, we have the opportunity and the privilege to be present for the mountaintop highs of life, and we have the God-given responsibility to be present in the pits and the lows and the crushing defeats of life as well. When we're there, especially in the, in the moments that feel like rocks piled on top of them, uh, they're going to lean into us as we lean into them, and they're going to give permission over time for us to press in with the gospel, and they're going to give us permission to talk about the harder truths of following Jesus because the church and the family of God stayed connected to them. I read an article recently about a 16-year-old girl named Kara who grew up in the church for her entire life. She hits a point in her life when she wants to tell her parents that she doesn't believe any of it anymore. The reason she doesn't believe is because she's struggling with what she sees in the world. And she wants to tell mom and dad how bored she is with church. She can't tell them because she's afraid they're going to play the you're not old enough to make that decision card. And while most of us would probably agree that at 16, she's probably not ready to make that definitive decision for herself, here's the thing. She couldn't talk to mom and dad because that conversation wasn't, that was taboo. She wasn't given permission to have that conversation. So what she does is she writes to an advice columnist, because they always give godly advice, and she writes to an advice columnist in the paper who writes her back and says this, Kara, you're right. Faith is a private and deeply personal matter that you shouldn't have to discuss with anyone. Ouch. As if that's not bad enough, this interfering expert says this, faith is like the flu. You should never share it with others. And if you do anyway and on purpose, then you're a threat, not a friend. I wanted to say, how dare you, right? But here's the truth. The truth is that as long as we keep faith impersonal and private, a tolerant society will embrace us and smile at us and welcome us. As long as it's just the general spirituality aspect uh, that's okay. That's why Oprah is so successful at elevating general spirituality. Um, but if you bring in Jesus, all of a sudden it's culturally offensive, right? Bring in the cultural offensiveness of Jesus, forget it. So if the culture's tactic, and I don't mean that they're collaborating, but if the enemy's tactic, if Satan's plan is to cut Jesus out of the conversation by making it about spiritual but not Christian, then I think our responsibility uh, is to collaborate to ensure a sticky faith for our kids. That's what we have to do. We have to collaborate and continue to teach Jesus and what he uh, wants for their faith. And we have to do it together because God has put two powerful forces together on this planet, you guys. He has created the institution of the church and he has created the institution of the family and he's told us to work together, to link together. They both exist because he initiated them and because through them, that's how he plans to demonstrate his plan of redemption and restoration for mankind. And so if we work together, we can potentially make a greater impact than if we try to go this on our own and do it by ourselves. So I believe with all of me that we need each other. I really do. I believe you need me. I believe I need you. I need you to speak into my kids and I want to speak into you and into yours. I believe that's how God works because too much is at stake for us to fail because our primary task is to build his kingdom for the next generation. We have to collaborate. If we can support you in your parenting, your grandparenting, your foster parenting, your mentoring, whatever your relationship with young people, if we can support you, we want to do that. We do.
If you can help us support families as they do that, we want your help. We do. Sincerely, we want your help. Please, please talk to us. My email is easy. Kirk, where are you? Kirk, two Ks, at southridgefellowship.com. It's easy. We'd love to hear from you. You can talk to me after the service. You can talk to one of our hub ministry leaders, our youth team, our SR Kids team, our Club 67 folks. You need our help. We need yours. Because honestly, they're a treasure, right? And we got to help them stay connected to their faith. Let's pray. Lord, uh, thanks for t- today and, and thank for the people that are here and thank you, that, um, thank you that you have given us the privilege of being called your children and the privilege of investing in the next generation so that they will follow you and love you. And God, if the culture's tactic is to pull Jesus out of the dialogue, we want to keep Jesus in the conversation because we believe it is about him and by him and for him. And so God, equip us today. Uh, help us to look around and see the influences we have with young people. Help us to make the most of those. Help us to have and live an authentic faith because they will root us out if we are fake in our faith. Uh, Help us also, God, to be aware of opportunities that you've put in front of us that we haven't yet accepted or pressed into. God, every person in this room is connected to a young person in some way. Every person in this room who's no longer a young person was affected by someone at one point, an adult who, who walked with you, who knew you, who loved your son. And so, God, we pray that today, that we would leave a lasting legacy of faith because we continue to seek Jesus and because we continue to desire for them to know and follow him as well. So God, in our quiet moments as we begin to sing, would you speak to our hearts? Would you draw us to conviction in whatever is needed? And God, would you continue to equip your church to build your kingdom here? We pray in Christ's name, amen.